You're listening to a teaching series by Cross Culture Church of Christ. If you'd like any more information about our church, head to crossculture.net.au. Feel free to share this podcast with others, but please don't alter the content in any way. We hope you enjoy it. If you've got a Bible, it would really help me and I think help you if you're able to open it up at Acts chapter 1. If you haven't got a a real Bible with you, maybe you've got a virtual Bible on your phone, you could open that up. Uh, Acts chapter 1, and we're going to look at those first 11 verses. Somebody told me about how they had seen a gardener's white van. So this gardener who uh, drove around doing his business had written on the side of his white van the slogan, Our business is growing. Clever slogan, because he was in the business of growing plants as a gardener, and it was a business that was getting bigger. And it struck me that that would be a very good slogan for the church. Our business is growing. The thing that we're all engaged in doing is looking for the growth of Christians, and we want our business, our church, to grow bigger. Our business is growing. Uh, except we're not, of course. (laughs) You'd think that would be the graph, but in fact, the reality is, well, there's no ignoring the statistics. Obviously, I know the situation in the UK better, but in the UK, the statistic is not growth, but shrinkage. According to Operation World, which is a, a book that describes the Christian situation in every country in the world. If you turn to the back of that book, it has a a table there of the countries that are growing fastest and slowest. Tells you about the growth rate of evangelicals, evangelical Christians in each country. The UK, our growth rate is 0%. We are the ninth slowest growing church in the world. In the Church of England, the Anglican Church, as an example in the UK, adult attendance has only grown last year in two of the regions, two out of over 40. And in London, which is where I am based, the church there, as I understand it, only 15 churches out of several hundred are actually growing, are bigger now than they were a year ago. And in Australia, in case you're thinking, not us, surely, The attendance at churches in Australia is about 8%, and in all the older denominations, churches face stagnation and decline. And in a situation like this, a plane that is headed straight for the ground like this needs to change direction. Some years ago, a friend of mine went to be vicar of a church in Canada. He's going to be the minister there. It was a church that was right up in the mountains. It was small, a very old, an elderly congregation, And this friend of mine was not an evangelical Christian. He he wouldn't believe the things that we would believe about the Bible uh, as God's authoritative instruction for us. He wouldn't believe what we would believe about the death of Jesus uh, winning salvation for us. He was a liberal Christian, but he went there and said that as he went to this church in Canada, he realized he would have to evangelize which is a great irritation to him as a liberal Christian. And he said, I've got to evangelize because he realized that if he didn't, in a few years' time, he'd have no church left at all. Now, in that kind of situation, no wonder in our church lives we flog and flog the dead horse. We, we apply, apply guilt and bribes, 
carrot and stick to try to get people, Christian people, to do evangelism. And I think that what results is lots of Christians feeling failures and feeling more guilt. You know, feeling you've got to pretend, oh, I'm such a useless Christian. Please pray for me because I only managed to witness to six people this week and I know it should have been seven really. When the reality is, I wonder how many of us actually do speak about Jesus from week to week. I was speaking to a church minister only recently, and he was saying, you know, growth in his church is so slow. Conversions are so rare. He says, I don't know if anybody really in my church is actually speaking up about Jesus. That feeling that it's all rather hopeless. The church is shrinking, not growing. As a regular long-standing church member said to me once, well, Jesus' evangelism didn't work. I mean, after all, he ended up with only 11 followers. If he couldn't do evangelism, then obviously we can't either. And so that E word, evangelism, it's become a kind of dirty word in church circles. We're kind of scared of it. You might even at this moment thinking, oh no, this is going to be another sermon beating me up, telling me I've got to do more evangelism. And evangelism, we're secretly thinking, is something you shouldn't do to a dog, let alone to your best friend. Have you heard the old story about two American TV evangelists who were flying into London, into Heathrow Airport, the main airport in London? Let's call these two TV evangelists Jimmy A and Jimmy B. They decided, they both decided independently that God was sending them to set up shop in London because London so needs the gospel. 20 minutes short of the airport, there was a fault in the engine. Uh, it loses power and the aeroplane starts careering towards the ground. So Jimmy A immediately gets on his knees. Oh Lord, you know how much the people of London need my message. Please save me. Jimmy B also got on his knees and he said, Oh Lord, you know how much the people of London need my message. Please save me. The plane crashed into the motorway a hundred yards short of the runway. Question, who did God save? Answer, London. Give <laughs> me a little time for the joke to spread around the room. I want to say that the story of the church in Acts is a great encouragement to us. And especially for battle-weary Christian servants like you and me. And my prayer as I've been preparing Acts chapter 1 is this is going to be a great tonic for us, a real encouragement for us to keep going. So here it is, a very simple thing that we're going to consider today, and it is this, that it is the reigning Lord Jesus who sends his people on his mission to reach his world, to save multicultural London, if you like, or Melbourne or any other place on earth. So here's my first headline as we come to look at the passage this week. Here it is, that the reigning Jesus claims the whole world as his. Now, if you've been Christian for a while, that story in Acts chapter 1 may not seem particularly unusual to you, but actually it is a very unusual, it's a kind of weird story, isn't it? I, I used to work in London at a time when uh, for the very first time, a building was built 
that had the lifts on the outside of the building. So that if you're inside the building and you press the lift button, the doors would open and you'd walk into a sort of glass box that was attached on the outside of the building and would whisk you up to the top. So if you're standing on the street, you had this strange thing of watching people getting into this glass box to shoot up to the sky. And it was a very exciting moment in London to have lifts like that. That is actually the picture we've got here in Acts chapter 1, isn't it? It's a very strange picture of Jesus going up to heaven, a bit like he's being whisked up in a great glass elevator. It's almost a kind of, um, you know, beam me up, Scotty moment. You may think it's all a bit simplistic, really. It might seem that way, mightn't it? Jesus going up into heaven like he's in a great glass elevator. Except Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, is an extraordinarily careful historian. He's checked out every detail of every story he records. And he makes a very clear point. If you look down to our passage in verses 9, 10, and 11, five times we're told in those couple of verses that it was visible. And Luke is saying, if you'd been there, you would have seen this. For real, this isn't made up, this isn't myth, this isn't imagination. You would have seen, verse 9, Jesus lifted up, Jesus going up into the heavenly realms, into heaven, a bit like he's in a lift being whisked up to the office of the CEO on the top floor of the office building. Except this is not a lift, it's a cloud. And a cloud in the Bible, in the Old Testament, represents God's glory and his presence. It's, it's as if God sent a royal chariot to collect Jesus, to take him up to his coronation as king. How clear this makes it. You know, if, if you've been there watching this, if you'd watched this great glass elevator of a cloud elevate Jesus, do you get the point? Jesus is raised not just to life, he is raised to rule. In one and the same action, God took him from the grave to the throne, restored him to his rightful place. He is now seated as crowned king, king over all the world. I know that here in Australia, you've been having a good laugh at the UK as we've been going through all the Brexit thing. Let me just say, we've been having a good laugh at ourselves as well. Boris Johnson, our Prime Minister, is quite a figure of fun and ridicule in our nation. When he was five, apparently Boris Johnson said to his sister Rachel that when he grew up, his, he wanted to be world king. He thought there was a job where you could be king of the world, and that was the job he wanted. By the time he was 12, his ambitions were a bit more modest, and he had settled with the idea that he was going to be Prime Minister of the UK. But World King is what five-year-old Boris wanted to be. But of course, Boris could never be World King for one very simple reason. He's not Jesus. Because Jesus is World King, all the nations are given to him. That's how Psalm 2 describes it. All the world belongs to him. All the world is his. The equivalent story at the end of Matthew's gospel is that those well-known verses where Jesus says, all authority is given to me, therefore you disciples go into all the world. 
And it's exactly the same logic here in Acts chapter 1. Jesus is raised to be king of the world, so therefore all the world is within his sights. It belongs to him. It's his. He's got his eye on every bit of it. And that, I think, is what verse 8 is doing here in our passage. This verse where, which sets up a whole series of circles, growing bigger circles. And this turns out to be the contents page for the whole of the book of Acts. Because we're told here that Jesus sends out his disciples to invade not just Jerusalem where they are, but beyond that into Judea, and not just Judea, but beyond that into Samaria, and not just Samaria, but beyond that to the ends of the earth, all the way to Rome. They are to go there with the gospel into all the world because all the world is his. And that, of course, is where we fit in today, isn't it? I'm not trying to make grandiose claims about cross-culture, this particular church. I'm making a point about every Christian church, the whole history of the Christian church, that the essence of the church isn't about having programs and good organization and step. The church isn't all about primarily vision thinking and ideas like next Sunday's Vision Sunday. It's not about bold and exciting initiatives. That's not the heart of the church. The heart of the church is a worldwide vision for the spread of the rule of the king. Through the Mediterranean, through mainland Europe, to Brussels and then to London and to Lisbon and to Lima or to Manchester and Madrid and Mexico and Melbourne and every other place you can think of beginning with any other letter in the alphabet, every place in the world to Thailand, where it's illegal to evangelize, to Singapore, where it's illegal to say that Jesus is the only way. All the world, all the world is my parish. That's what John Wesley, the person who started the Methodist church said, all the world is my parish because all the world is claimed by Jesus. Do you see that here in these verses are the marching orders for the people of Jesus? The whole world is his and he sends us into all of the world. So this includes us going to our friends. Jesus claims lordship there. He sends us to invade the personal space of our friends with the gospel of the sovereign king. It includes us going to our locality, the church that I'm part of in southeast London. We've got a, we're a new church. We only began 15 months ago, we've got a clear desire to reach our local community. So we go knocking on the doors of the houses in the streets around the school where we meet, because Jesus claims to be king there in Peckham. It's not inappropriate for us to be knocking on their doors, taking the gospel to the nations who are all around us. Whether the people on the other side of the door are Muslim or Sikh or prosperity gospel or nothing, we knock on their door, we tell them about the king. Let's go to the hipster in Fitzroy. Let's go to the Chinese worker in Box Hill. Let's go to every nation, everybody around us. Because there's not one place that Jesus doesn't claim. There isn't any place where it's inappropriate to say Jesus is Lord here as well. Peckham, London, England, Europe, to the ends of the earth. Melbourne, Victoria, Australia, Asia, the ends of the earth. It's exactly who Jesus sends us to. 
But it's not just our friends. It's not just our locality. We've got to be cautious in our language because if all we did was talking about reaching our friends, just friendship evangelism, if all we talked about was about reaching our community, if that was the extent of our vision, there'd be large sections of Britain that would never hear, large sections of Australia, large sections of the world would never hear. We need to talk not just about friendship evangelism, but enemy evangelism, (laughs) going further. Jesus is ambitious. He's got the whole world in his sights. We need to keep our, our local outreach and our international mission linked together. Keep those two things together. Some churches have an evangelism committee who organise the church's local outreach. And then perhaps a mission support committee or missionary committee who are thinking about the gospel spreading around the world. But those two committees are actually the same thing, aren't they? They're the same task, locally or worldwide. We've got a worldwide global vision. And a city like Melbourne that's so multinational, it makes the point, doesn't it? The nations are here. We've got to reach all nations because... The reigning Jesus claims all the world as his. And therefore, and here's my second thing this morning, that the reigning Jesus directs his people from heaven. This book of Acts is the second volume that is written by Luke. Luke wrote a first volume, his gospel. And if you looked at the first verse of our reading here in Acts, Acts chapter 1, verse 1, Luke says that his first volume, the gospel of Luke is all about what Jesus began to do and to teach. And the implication here is what we've got in our hands now in the book of Acts. This book, this second volume, it's all about Jesus, what he continued to do and to teach. See, we call this book the Acts of the Apostles. It we better call the Acts of Jesus. This is what Jesus is doing. This is his onward march, the, the turning point in Jesus' ministry. I mean, actually, the only thing that's changed here in Acts chapter 1 is that the center of Jesus' operations has moved from on earth to in heaven. But it's the same task. It's the same mission. It's worldwide spread. I, as I mentioned, used to work at a a church in central London. And uh, some years ago, I was preaching there at a church and I came down out of the pulpit at the end of the service and was greeted by a message. And the message was, Lizzie has phoned, Lizzie, my wife, has phoned, you've got to go and help her. Now, you need to know that one of the main trunk roads into London goes through a tunnel under the Thames, and the tunnel is called the Blackwall Tunnel. And on a Sunday night, as people come back into the city, this approach road into the city gets clogged up with traffic. And we often used to be in this tunnel and we often used to say to one another when we're there in the car together with the children, I wonder what would happen if you broke down in the Blackwall Tunnel. You know, what do you do if your car suddenly stops? Do you just sit there and cause a traffic jam? Does does somebody come and rescue you? Do you phone somebody? What happens? Anyway, the message that I got that Sunday evening as I came down out of the pulpit was, Lizzie has phoned. You've got to go and help her. She's broken down in the Blackwall Tunnel. And I was thinking, this is all Lizzie's worst nightmares. In the car, Sunday night, hungry children, tired children, broken down in the Blackwall Tunnel. And she doesn't know what to do. What are you supposed to do there? So I came out of the pulpit. I grabbed somebody in the congregation and I said, please will you drive me to the Blackwall Tunnel? 
because I was going to be Superman and save the day. This is in the day before mobile phones. It was kind of prehistory. So there's no way of getting in touch with her. I got this person to drive me back to the Blackwall Tunnel and to one of the approach roads down into the tunnel. I said, drop me here. Jumped out of the car. Ran into a flight of stairs, really. And I ran up them and ended up bursting into a room that looked very like this, where there's one man sat with 50, 100 television screens in front of him. This is the controller of the Blackwall Tunnel. And I burst in and I said, my wife's broken down in the Blackwall Tunnel. I'm here to save her. And he said, pointing at all the screens, yeah, I don't think so. Everything's going fine tonight. There's nobody broken down in there. That control room is a picture, if you like, of the throne at the center of all reality, the, the reigning Jesus directing his church. There he is, seeing everything that is going on. Every angle on every outreach endeavor. He's controlling the advance of the gospel because Jesus is directing his people from heaven. Just to finish off the story, Lizzie was fine. She hadn't broken down the Blackwell Tunnel. She was the other side of the Blackwell Tunnel. Um, she'd been towed home by a recovery truck. By the time I got there, she was long gone. So don't need to worry about her. Moving on. This, I think, is why in our chapter there's so much talk about the kingdom. I don't know whether you noticed that when it was being read. It's the, the logical topic of conversation to have with a king. So verse 3, for example, what did Jesus talk about with his disciples after the resurrection? He talked about the king and his kingdom, the kingdom that he's going to establish. For 40 days, that was his teaching curriculum. Or look down to verse 6. What do the disciples want to talk about with Jesus? It's the kingdom. Now, of course, as you look at verse 6, you'll see they've got completely the wrong end of the stick about the kingdom. They think that the kingdom has got to have a place somewhere. It's got to be a bit of land that is called the United Kingdom of Jesus or whatever. But at least they've got the right stick. They've got the idea that if Jesus is a king, then he's going to have a kingdom. So he's all about the kingdom. We should be asking the king about his kingdom. And actually, the end of the book of Acts has the same kind of theme. So if you turn right to the end of Acts, we won't do it now, but if you were to look at it later in the last half of the chapter, again, twice the kingdom is mentioned. So at the beginning of the book and at the end of the book, it's flagged up kingdom, the kingdom of King Jesus. It's almost like kind of bookends to, to mark the beginning and the end of this story, that the theme of the book of Acts is the kingdom of King Jesus. As Jesus continues to do things and to teach things, as Jesus continues to direct his people from heaven. So what is the first act in the reign of King Jesus? The first act in his new kingdom well, we're told in this story, aren't we, about Jesus' going, but also about the Spirit's coming. In a few days, Jesus promises the Spirit is going to come, verse 8. And it's going to happen just one chapter later in the book of Acts. This once for all, total immersion in the Holy Spirit. It's promised in verse 5, this gift of the Spirit. It's repeated in verse 8. The gift of the Spirit, the power of King Jesus put into his people 
to redirect their lives in his service. And I've been trying to think if there's any more, if there's any way you could make the point more obvious, if there was any more obvious visual aid than what immediately happens in Acts chapter 2. To make absolutely clear what the kingdom of Jesus is all about. See, in chapter 1, the disciples are thoroughly confused. They barely understand the purposes of Jesus. The question they ask in verse 6 got completely the wrong end of the stick. But by chapter 2, Jesus, exalted to his heavenly throne, pours out his Holy Spirit on timid, shut-away disciples so that, incredibly, almost by magic, they stand up and they speak out the gospel and they're able to do it in a way that is so clear everybody understands what they're talking about. And Peter says, it's not that we're special in this. It's not that the Spirit is now just poured out on some people. That's how it had been on the Old Test- in the Old Testament. The Spirit was given to certain people for certain tasks at a certain time. And Peter's saying, no, no, that's, we're not at that moment now. Now the Holy Spirit is poured out on every Christian, on every believer. Every Christian can now speak and proclaim, can prophesy can speak out so that all the world can know about King Jesus and call on his name and be saved. God sends out every Christian, not just the few in chapter 2, but every Christian with an understanding of the saving work of King Jesus so that every Christian is able to speak it out. A massive army of mouthpieces, millions of Christian people scattered throughout the week in hospitals, in schools, in unis, in neighbourhoods, in toddler groups, in factories, in laboratories, Christian people scattered everywhere. And he wants this to happen because there's a whole world who need to hear. There is a world full of people who need to hear about salvation. King Jesus longs that everybody knows how to be safe before the great and terrible day of the Lord. He wants everybody to know how to call on the Lord and Christ, their saviour, Jesus. And to make the point, to make it abundantly clear that that's what's going on, and this is how King Jesus is directing his people, and this is what he wants us to do. There's this moment in chapter two, isn't there, where suddenly everybody starts speaking in languages that they've never learned. I start speaking... Spanish, you start speaking Urdu, you start speaking Russian, you start speaking Mandarin. And I realise this illustration may not work very well in a mixed congregation like this because I might just have picked on people who already do speak those languages. But that's the moment. Suddenly, a whole load of languages from the, all around the world are known by us. And it's not just that the disciples you know, can now plug into a learn Swahili in 12 hours online course. It's not just we now know the language that you need to get by on holiday. You know, where is the train station? Can I exchange my money here? What they immediately know are all the words that you need, chapter 2, verse 11, to tell the mighty works of God. No need for any simultaneous translation to understand what they're speaking. What an amazing visual aid that is. Jesus sends his spirit and the spirit provides languages so that they can reach out to every language under heaven. 
the whole world, if you like. And then they're out on the streets with all of this going on. And Jerusalem that they go out into is just like any other modern city, just like Melbourne on any day of the week. You can't hear any English being spoken. People are here from every nation under heaven. And Jesus sends his spirit and his spirit sends his disciples. It's not subtle, is it? King Jesus, the world king, from his throne of worldwide rule, directs his people, go, speak. And I'll give you the words to say, the languages. Speak it. By the way, can I just say, it would be an odd thing today, wouldn't it, if having been at church this morning, listening to this bit of Acts chapter 1, thinking about how to reach a global city, how to share Christ in a multicultural Melbourne that's here on our doorstep. It would be a very odd thing, wouldn't it, if on our way home, if nobody spoke about Jesus to the people that we're going to meet. Be on a tram, on a bus, on a train, you'll be sitting next to people who are not Christians. Wouldn't it be odd if all of us went home thinking, yes, I really must speak to the nations about Jesus, and none of us did? How's your day been? I've had a really interesting morning. I've been to church. We've been thinking about how to speak about Jesus to all the different people living in Melbourne. Has anybody ever spoken about Jesus to you? Are you a Christian yourself or aren't you sure about these things? It's not difficult, is it, to speak what we know to be true about King Jesus. None of that's going to happen unless we open our mouths. It's all very well hearing about how Jesus sends us to speak if we all go out with our zips firmly shut across our lips. Jesus directs his people to proclaim. So in Acts chapter 1, this chapter we've been thinking about this morning, chapter 1 talks about Jesus' going, and the end of our passage in verse 11 talks about Jesus' coming, his ascension and his return. What lies between the going of Jesus and the coming of Jesus have we seen in our passage? Well, we've seen that there is the going of Jesus and there is, there is the coming of the Spirit and the going of the disciples before the coming back of Jesus. The going of Jesus, the coming of the Spirit, the going of the disciples and the coming back of Jesus. Those are the four big moments in world history after Acts chapter 1. Between the going and the coming back, commissioned by the resurrection, sent by the returning king, empowered by the Holy Spirit, we go as proclaimers, all of us, sent by the reigning king. Do you get this point? The going of Jesus that's happened. The coming of the Spirit, that's happened. The coming of Jesus, oh, that hasn't happened yet. Uh, where are we in this foot? Oh, yes, the going of the disciples. That's where we are in the timeline. And these four events, these dates set up the task for us. These are the most significant dates to get in your diary. Don't know what dates you've got in your Google calendar for this week, but these four are the essential ones. Two of them are in the past, the going of Jesus and the coming of the Spirit. 
One of them is in the future, we don't know how long, the return of Jesus. The task for us this week is the going of the disciples. And the rest of our diary needs to be organized around these facts of eternity. Around this job that King Jesus has given us to do. We need to organize our diary around the truths of Acts chapter 1. We need to organize our diary around the fact that people are going to hell. So King Jesus sends his people on his mission to reach his world. And so, Acts says, that is how the church grows, not shrinks, but grows through all the world. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus said, you will receive power, although, of course, that's in the past for us. We have received power when the Holy Spirit has come on us. And we will be witnesses to Jesus in Melbourne and in Victoria and in Australia and in Asia and to the ends of the earth. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, God has made you Lord and Christ, reigning King. You are now sat at the heart of the control room of the universe on your heavenly throne. The whole world belongs to you. It's been given to you as your inheritance. And with all the authority that you have as King of Kings, you send us, your followers, into the world. Thank you that you make it absolutely clear what our task is. Thank you that you send us to proclaim. And because all of this world is yours, and because all of this world is facing judgment on the great and terrible day of the Lord, and because we know the message of how to be safe on that day, King Jesus, please send us out again today with all the great works of a sovereign God on our lips, the eternal rule of the Son of God as our commission. Please send us to proclaim the gospel all about you to a world that so desperately needs to know it. Renew our courage today. Send us out, impel us, drive us, because of what you've said to us this morning from your word. We ask it in your name. Amen. Thanks so much, Nigel. Uh, first question, how should we respond when we tell our friends of the love of Jesus and their response is, that's something I've been looking for but never acted on? Uh, what then is the next step? Is it our job to continue pursuing them? It's our job to speak about Jesus. I don't know whether I like the word the pursuit, pursuing them, because that kind of makes it sound like a hunt. You kind of throw spears at them or shoot them with arrows. But it is our job to keep speaking to them about the Lord Jesus. Yes, let's keep speaking. Next one. Uh, how can we effectively evangelise and share Jesus in a restricted, cross-culturally sensitive nation, uh, perhaps to Muslim or Buddhist or Hindu missionaries who believe they have the right way? Yeah, thank you. I think, I think we, can, we can do it and we could do it sensitively. And I think it's very helpful to think of ways that we can say things sensitively. But don't mishear me. By sensitively, I don't mean deceptively. 
There is a sensitive way of talking about God's judgment on sinners. There is a deceptive way of speaking about God's judgment on sinners. That is, you never mention it. I'm talking about saying it sensitively, not saying it in a way that doesn't speak it, that keeps things to ourselves. But I think we need to think in a, a multicultural context. How can we speak about the Lord Jesus in a way that makes the claims of Jesus clear, but doesn't immediately make people think, oh, you've got it in for me? Um, I, I think one of the great things, going back to something that Sam said right at the beginning of the service, what a great line it is to say to the Muslim, the whole message about Christianity is about how God wants to bless Muslims. Now, that's a very powerful message, isn't it? Because what the Muslim is used to hearing is the message of Christianity is we want to smash the Muslims, we want to defeat the Muslims, we want to have a crusade about them. So that's the kind of thing I mean, to think of ways of expressing the truth of the gospel plainly and in a way that is kind and gracious and will in a way undermine preconceptions. One more. If God is in the control room and oversees everything, how would you answer a non-believer who asks this question? Why did he allow so many disasters like the bushfire floods to take place and make us suffer? Doesn't look like he's in control. That's a great question. So I think it's worth being aware that when that kind of question is asked, very often it's presented as bushfires or flooding or disaster, but behind it often lies a personal tragedy. So before dashing in with the right answer, the carefully thought out apologetic answer, it's worth bearing in mind this is probably a pastoral conversation, not an apologetic question. So to whatever our answer is, we want to get behind what might be the question. So what is the question behind the question they're asking? So I think it's always good before answering that question to first of all do some follow-up discovery. So can I ask why you're asking that question, why that's of interest to you? Um, are there personal, are there ways in which you've really experienced the sharp, sharp end of suffering in your own family, your own life? I think that changes the nature of the question and will mean that we're likely to be much more careful and sensitive and kind in the way we answer it. In shorthand, I'm very happy to talk about this at length if you want to come and talk to me afterwards, but in shorthand, I would say the key issue we want to say is that God is powerful and God is kind. God is able to end all suffering and God wants to end all suffering. Now, I want the non-Christian to say, if he can and if he wants to, why doesn't he? So I want to make it clear that he can and he would like to, he wants to, so that they say, well, why doesn't he then? And my answer to why doesn't he then is to say, if God were to come now and end all hardship and suffering and all wrong in our world, where do you think he should draw the line in terms of what bad things he will end? You've mentioned fires and floods. Obviously, we want that to end. What about people who cause hurt to others? Do you think those people should be removed from the world? Oh, yes, definitely. All criminals? Yes, definitely. Everybody who's in prison? Mm, not sure about that because there might be some people in prison who aren't guilty of crimes they've been put there for, or there might be lesser crimes. No, I think you're probably right. Everybody in prison, they, they should. In other words, keep asking the question, how far would 
You like God to go if he's going to remove all suffering to make this the perfect world that you would like it to be. And if he's going to remove all evil, all bad stuff, that's going to include me because I contribute to bad stuff in this world too. I do things that hurt people. So if God is going to remove all evil, he's got to remove all of us as well, hasn't he? So God can and God wants to, but at the moment he's delaying bringing that end to all bad stuff in our world to allow people like you and me to hear about Jesus and to turn to him and to be saved. He can, he will do, but he's delaying the moment when he brings heaven to allow, allow us a chance, actually a chance for you to have a conversation like this with me and for you to hear about Jesus. What are you going to do about him? Thanks, Nigel. There are other questions, so if your question wasn't answered, please come and uh, chat with Nigel afterwards. Or if you do have another question that you didn't send in, uh, please do that. <laughs>